Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 344 is recorded live October 5th, 2017. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where I understand people are still continuing to dive. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How you doing today, Mac? Doing very well. I'm glad to be here. And we also have Jim Schultz. How you doing today, Jim? I'm doing great, and I'm glad to be here, too. Excellent. This is uh, it's nice. I think it's, a, it's been a while since the three of us have been on the air together, so... Just like old times. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard to believe we've, what, what, what were we at? We're at 344 episodes. That is quite a haul. And speaking of hauls, we have a few articles. I don't know if we'll get through them all, but we'll, we'll start. Uh, even though I do have a feeling Mac will want us to cover the three at the end. Uh, the first one, well, maybe I don't have this one. So it's the Asian ah, car? Yep. Yep. Here it is. It says, and the, I, I, I wasn't quite sure when I saw the title of this one, but it says Lake Michigan itself is the greatest Asian carp deterrent. It says, for years, people have been freaking out about the Asian carp are about to invade the Great Lakes. That concern seemed more than real than ever this summer after Illinois fishermen caught a carp in June, less than 10 miles from Lake Michigan, beyond the barriers designed to keep them out. Uh, the fish have already decimated Midwestern re- rivers. There are filter feeders that feed on plankton, the tiny plants and critters that prop up the food chain, and they eat lots of them. Asian carp eat about a pound of stuff every day. Carp are also a little creepy. They've been so captivated to public's attention, they spawn in starting numbers and are notorious for leaping from the water all at once, smacking their slimy fish bodies into innocent boaters. It's easy to see why conservationists and government agencies are concerned. Asian carp are kind of the perfect poster child for an invasive species says Molly Flanagan, Vice President for the Policy for the Alliance of the Great Lakes. The silver carp jump and they're scary. They hurt people. The big head carp eat a lot. In August, the government fully released its long-awaited $275 million plan to stop carp from reaching the Great Lakes. The Army Corps of Engineers' so-called Brandon Road Plan would install electric barriers at a lock and a dam near Joliet, Illinois. Underwater speakers would sonically blast the fish as an additional deterrent. Both Republicans and Democrats from the neighboring state have supported taking action against the carp in hope of protecting the Great Lakes sports fishing industry. But Flanagan says the Trump administration held the study back at the urging of industry groups like shipping companies who have barges on the waterway. What they're worried about is delays. If they have to uh, lock a dam every time they go upriver, how much time is that going to add to their journey? A wet desert. But surprisingly, when you ask veteran Great Lake ecologist about the dreaded carp reaching Lake Michigan, you often be met with groans. Those groans are from the reality that even more horrifying than a carp is that there's a little left in Lake Michigan to devastate. Other invasive species, mostly the quagga mussels, have already stripped the lake of its food rather than invade Lake Michigan. Ravenous carp shipping up the canal might turn back once they reach the nutrient-poor environment of Lake Michigan. 
Like carp mussels love plankton, quagga mussels are now numbered in trillions. Along the lake bottom, stretching more than 100 miles from east to western shore, there's virtually unbroken bed of filter feeders that sucked the life from Lake Michigan. Carmen Aguilar of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee is an expert on how invasive species affect the Great Lakes food chain. She says quagga mussels can filter the whole system once regularly every four days. Lake Michigan is now an aquatic desert. You have desert water from Lake Michigan virtually with virtually no food in it heading towards the Mississippi River, says fisheries ecologist John Johnson, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. That water will get greener and greener as it heads towards the Mississippi. Why is the water better fertilizer farther south? Poop, or as Johansson puts it, incomplete processing of sewage in Chicago. So if you imagine yourself as an Asian carp with need of phytoplankton, they need huge amounts of it to survive. What they're doing is swimming up the canal, is getting in the desert more and more. They're going to turn around. He says you can't guarantee no carp will make it to Lake Michigan, but if they do, they'll have a hard time reproducing or even surviving far from the city shorelines in the open lakes. But for Flanagan and Brandon Road, let's electrocute the carp plan is, is about much more. It's now some 180 invasives in the Great Lakes. It isn't just Asian carp. What we have in Chicago are waterway systems is essentially an invasive species superhighway. It's a continuous connection between the Great Lakes Basin and the Mississippi River Basin. Of goal of conservationists is to put a roadblock on that highway. Asian carp are the easiest way to get other people interested in potentially doing any of the work, Flanagan says. So are I, why they just sound a little bit overly optimistic. This sounds like the, the way that you explain the reason they're not here already, but is that really much of a barrier? I have no idea. And again, that's one person I you know that's had that opinion. I really haven't heard others share that opinion. Yeah. And then okay, so they don't so they don't stay in Lake Michigan. You've got plenty of other rivers that feed into it. And so if that's the case, there's gonna be times a year we have more runoff. Maybe you have a spring thaw with lots of nutrients and the carp for a while. Don't think that's too bad. And maybe when they do decide to turn around, they're already in a lake, so they start heading up some of our rivers. I'm not sure I want to share the St. Joe with those guys. No, I, I don't. I'm not looking forward to having uh, carp jumping in the boat or, uh, you know, and, and then the impact to the economy. Well, time is going to tell. Okay, let's see. And then we have Lake Erie. Um, and I thought Lake Erie was doing a little bit better this year, but this article is saying that Lake Erie is covered with 700 miles of green slime. Uh, it's covered in shockingly green slime algae bloom that's hurting tourism and causing anxiety for Lake Area residents. The massive algae blooms are becoming an annual occurrence in the lake, mainly because farmland fertilizer runoff, according to the New York Times. Last week, huge bloom occurred in the area of the lake bordering Michigan, Ohio, although the algae can produce a toxin like it did in 2014 when the city of Toledo, Ohio, declared a state of emergency over contaminated drinking water. The bloom this year did not produce high levels of toxin, scientists told the Times. Excessive nutrients uh, in the fertilizers used by Ohio farmers, the newspaper reported, runs in the river that feeds in Lake Erie, causing massive blooms. Millions of people rely on Lake Erie for their drinking water. Time said officials are testing the water to make sure it's still safe for human consumption, which I know they do regularly. Uh, so I'm trying to figure out what this, you know, is this just a, one of those like update articles where they're trying to remind us that it's not any better? Or? 
Well, I know the picture they have included in that is quite graphic, and that was that's a current one from September the 21st. Uh, you know, you talk about the Asian carp and how that's going to affect the economy. Well, you can't drink the water and hurt a lot more than just the economy. I mean, it's the people. And how many of those take their water supplies out of the lake, just like we do? Oh, a lot. I would be extremely concerned with having to filter that and try to make it drinkable. Yeah, just... I would hope others are looking at it. I mean, if they know the problem, which they do, they had the algae kill back in 2014, so it's only a problem during the summer, so we don't worry about it. When the ice comes, it'll take care of it. Well, short-sighted solution, I haven't really heard anybody identifying how to help, you know, rectify the situation. Have you? No, not recently. I mean, there's, well, we know what some of the solution is. Don't put poop in the water. Yeah, that's going to be the one of the first ones because we've got, septic systems that aren't completely treating it, uh, like the previous article talked about. And then the other end of that equation they're talking about is farm runoff. Uh, some of it's going to be farm runoff. Some of it's going to be municipal and uh, residential runoff, you know, people over-fertilizing. And I don't know if everybody's great say this, but ours around here say, you know, all uh, greats uh, lead to the river or to the water. So you've got that same thing. So if you you go and you've got a little plot of yard in the front and you take three bags of fertilizer and you juice that thing up, every time it rains, all that extra fertilizer is going down the drain into the uh, you know, the storm sewers and then back out into the lake. And algae yeah, likes yeah. that stuff very well. I'm going to say the high altitude shot of the area is quite significant when you look at exactly where the bloom is. Mm-hmm. And you also notice high-density population area, just like you said, a lot of runoffs. And I don't think it's from the farmers. The runoff is happening. The secondary, if you look to the north and to the east, it minimizes a lot. And if you look at the shoreline, population density is way, way, way down. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot to we are polluting it with our runoffs, like you said, from the sewers. Yeah. So the, all these things need to be curtailed. And reduced and ideally eliminated. You know, we've got the technology to be able to handle this. Uh, You know, as Karen's pointed out, there's certain things that we are still trying to figure out how to prevent, such as uh, some of these um, micronutrients and uh, uh, pharmaceuticals. But, you know, that's not what this is. This is just plain and dirty uh, fertilizer and other waste products. So shame on us for that. And then let's see if I can get this one to load. Oh, 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 here it is. Possible new piece of the Antikythera mechanism. And I think I've almost pronounced that right. The Antikythera mechanism was for years one of the world's oldest and greatest unsolved mysteries. I don't think it was the oldest. Uh, the strange inter- intricate device was found in 1902 in a shipwreck off the Greek island of Antikythera. For over a century, device construction and intended use puzzled historians and archaeologists. Coins and other artifacts found the ship were dated to the first century, but the mechanism's construction appeared to be far more advanced than any other technology known for that time. In the last decade, new 3D scanning technologies have allowed researchers to peer into the inner workings of the device like never before. It's now believed the device is one of the world's first analog computers was used to chart astrological events 
Like lunar and solar cycles and eclipses, the ship on which the device was found is still the subject of scrutiny and new discoveries being made. Last year, bone fragments belonging to human occupants of the ship were located and are still undergoing DNA testing to determine their ancestry. Now researchers in the, great, in the Greek effort of underwater antiquities in Sweden's Lund University have made another discovery among the shipwreck that could revolutionize Greek history team has found what they're describing is a wealth of treasure surrounding the shipwreck, which includes human remains, bone fragments, marble statues, a sarcophagus lid, a mysterious bronze disc, which features the image of the bull. Of the bull. I, I said the bull. It's a bull. The treasures were found underneath boulders which had fallen from nearby cliffs on the island. The archaeologists are predicting that the statue fragments could add to our limited understanding of this period of Greek history since less than a few dozen intact statues have been discovered from this period. The, str- the strange bronze disc is currently a mystery to researchers. It measures about 8 centimeters across, has four arms with holes for pins and screws. One theory is that it could be the missing piece of the mechanism itself, although the remains, the, its purpose remains unknown. Initially speculated this might contain more gears, but x-rays revealed to be some sort of lid or decorative element featuring a bold design. Still, Cardiff University, Mike Edmonds, a member of the uh, Antithecura Mechanism Research Project, told The Guardian that the discovery of the bronze disc leads hope to the possibility that more pieces of the mechanism may be found. They're getting very good at detecting bronze items, which raises the possibility they may be able to find either the missing planetary gear from the mechanism, which we know is there in the analysis of the inscriptions on the mechanism, or a new piece of the mechanism, or another mechanism that was being transported. And that would be very exciting. Finds like this make you wonder what untold treasures of civilization long gone might lie deep underground or underneath miles of ocean. So... I was hoping when I originally found the article that they had found some gears. Uh, that would have been exciting to see if they could have figured out some more of that mechanism. I like the ending of the item, too, though. Yeah, the, the close-up of it once they cleaned it up? No, the verbalization of they make frequent discoveries, which might suggest ancient civilizations had more advanced technologies than we thought you know, possible. And then they talk about as history of cycle. Has all of this happened before, and will it happen again? Are we doomed to be forgotten under the waves? Are technology reduced to indecipherable rubble? <laughs> Interesting. The Twilight Zone. Yeah. Well, I, I think, and I've said this before, that we like to underestimate our ancestors. You know, our brains aren't that much farther along, if any, than their brains are. So the right time and effort, you know, if you're not spending your whole entire existence just trying to create food and eat, uh, then you you can do these sorts of inventions. I mean, you take Galileo, I mean, you know, and a telescope, and mm-hmm. Archimedes, I mean, these guys are no, you know, they're not dummies by any stretch. Yeah. And, and the difference is that they didn't have loads of research that they could lean on like we can today. I mean, that's why if uh, if you, I've heard numbers that we are, advancing 20 times faster than we were just 50 years ago uh, based on the fact that anybody at any subject can find background information almost instantly. I mean, quicker than you could have gone to a library and sifted through old books, you can now do a search. Uh, The risk that we have is that we're not taking the time to find some of the less uh, obvious sources of information. The immediate example would be books that haven't been digitized 
and, and then knowledge that just never made it into a written form. You know, there's still, you want, you want to talk to somebody who knows something, talk to an old guy who's been doing it for 60, 70 years. And that's where a lot of your knowledge can come from, especially if they were apprenticed from somebody and that information's been handed down for person to person for hundreds of years. Let's see. What is the next one we've got here? Oh, a tsunami worth of sea creatures. Uh, this one didn't didn't load for me, but just to kind of paraphrase, is that they've started to see some sea creatures that were only on the west side of the Pacific are now on the east side of the Pacific, and there's and some of these have come across with the debris from the tsunami. Uh, do you have that article, Mac? Yeah, I'm just uh, trying to look at it a little bit here. That said, uh, 300 different species of fish, mussels, crabs, and various sea creatures drifted from the shores of Japan to the Pacific coast on debris sent across by the tsunami in 2011. Uh, they're shocked from the aspect they thought, we never thought they could live that long under such harsh conditions. And it said that people began noticing the objects washing ashore five years ago. <clears throat> Excuse me. And by other debris, they're talking about docks, coolers, things like this that mm-hmm. were on the shore. Then they said uh, 2012, 66-foot-long section of dock washed up on Oregon's beach, covered in small sea creatures. And that's part of the 300 new ones they hadn't seen or didn't expect to find on this side of the pond. Yeah. And I think one of the items they talk about, it's a bit of what we call ecological roulette. Mm-hmm. And since much of the debris was made of plastic that wasn't biodegradable, continued to float, sea creatures hanging on. They somehow survived the 4,300-mile trip, some cycling through several generations. These species can survive for years if they're wrapped, if their small boat is not dissolving under them, ergo plastic doesn't dissolve. Then they said, uh, because of this, many hundreds of thousands of individuals are transported and arrived in North America and the Hawaiian Islands. Most of those species were never before on the radar is being transported across the oceans on marine debris. So they talked about uh, they've created or we have created a new ecological process, the process of mega rafting is what they're calling it. Mega so rafting. it says it raises the uh, well, let's see here development of materials that can float for ages and the rising levels of seas due to climate change make the possibility of these events even larger and larger. And then they talked about, for now it isn't an issue, but the invasive species do come in a high price tag, which we already talked about with Lake Michigan. The U.S. Fish and Game Wildlife Service estimates more than $120 billion in damages alone in the United States. So, whoops. Yeah. $120 billion in damages, that's a lot. Because um, one thing, at first when you when I thought of a tsunami, is it, well, this, is, this has happened for eons. But it's really the man-made structures and objects that can preserve or act as a container for these uh, creatures longer than what would normally be available is what the matter is. Uh, so you di- you would have had some of this in ancient times, uh, but it would be more isolated. You know, it might be a tree log uh, that just happened to make it across, but uh, we're, we're providing a much larger opportunity for those items to make it across. But the other thing that I, I, I think of is how is this different than uh, ships and vessels bringing uh, these ring critters along? I mean, you've got a boat that you know, sits in a harbor for you know, 
three weeks to a month and these creatures attach to it and then it goes you know from you know hong kong to the united states uh you've got to have some similar opportunity there i'm not sure how the anti-fouling and biocides they use work nor the speed of the vessel the pump plummeting it might take with the up and down motion of, of getting items off of it yeah I think they're looking at from the size of the microorganisms, and and we know how much plastic is out there. I mean, it's just tremendous. The avenues for carrying it are a lot more vast surface area-wise than surface area of the boats. What did you say, Jim? I was going to say the same, very similar speed of the vessels as part of it, and then the anti-fouling. But, I mean, you still get barnacles and everything growing on those oceanic vessels. Well, and, and that was some of the original theories of how we got the zebra and guagas was well, in ballast, ballast tanks. Yeah, so yeah. We, we've still got at, that as an option. So mm-hmm. uh, not that I want to downplay that this is not a problem, but, you know, it's, it's a, just another vector with all these other opportunities. Well, you know, everybody was talking about the uh, radioactive debris mm-hmm. that was drifting over from, was it Fukushima? Yep. Yeah. Well, I know that was a concern, but I think of everything that was probably the least concern compared to this. Because uh, yep. uh, for for those that are in the the nuclear industry, I mean, about the best thing you can have uh, radioactive material in is water because it acts as such a damper to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting article, and then this is the one we were we were kind of hinting at. I can't remember if it was before the show or not. But does anyone actually go diving with a dive walk? This is an article out of the New York Times, and uh, you know I, I've kind of wondered. You know, my my sister recently uh, bought me a a watch, and what attracted her to it is the fact that it said that it was a dive watch, and it does. And I'm not wearing it right now, but it does have a depth rating on. But it's it's way too fancy for me to think I want to wear that in the water. But then it comes that these watches really had a practical value for scuba diving. Uh, well, I think I said it before is I don't need a computer. I'm, you know, watch is nice. If you know your dive time, how long you're going to be down, and you check your charts. Mm-hmm. If you're diving repetitive dives a lot, you're going deep a lot, I like the idea of having a computer that will give you the trending on it, you know, mm-hmm. but you can dive without it. You don't need it, Yeah, in my opinion, but I'm an old fart. Well, I agree you don't need it, but they've. I think they've also run into that with – I don't know. Do we? It, it's it's always the younger generation <laughs> who runs into these things. But uh, I think it's just a natural human tendency uh, to be lazy. If you got a computer that can do all the work for you, and then you also reduce uh, some of the the mental effort that it took to learn how to scuba dive, that's what why these computers well, become you, so popular. You also get more bottom time with a computer than you will with oh, uh, just diving tables. Yeah, no, I agree. That's that's one of my favorites. Is that if I was diving the tables, I would. I mean, it doesn't happen all the time because I'm usually well outside of deco. But we've seen that. Uh, you know, I, it's not uncommon for me, especially when I you start hitting those hundred foot, you know, plus or forty meter uh, deep wrecks, and uh, you can you can skate along that deco and come up. But if you follow just the tables, you only have a you know a minute or two of bottom time, and and you're heading back up to your your safety stop, so yeah, certainly can give you a little bit extra time on there. But I'm looking at some of the price. Even though you know, 
I don't think the divers are a huge business. There is a prestige, and they're, and they're putting it back to where they said that uh, James Bond, Sean Connery, wore a Rolex Submariner in his early Bond films, uh, which represented no-nonsense ruggedness. Uh, the article quote says, Men these days yearn for a time when they actually had to do things. Split your own wood, hunt for your dinner. We're getting so removed from that that we hold on to these talismans for daring do. Uh, well, I don't even wear a watch anymore. I've got my cell yeah. phone, and pretty much that's the uh, yeah what I use for a watch. Well, you think about a cell phone. That's an atomic watch in your pocket because it's synchronized if, if provided your carrier's doing it properly. That's within a second of, of world accurate, so it's hard to beat that. Uh, I have started wearing a watch recently again, but it's in the form of a uh, fitness tracker. Um, and I just like the, the fact that it, it gives me an idea of, you know, activity levels. And, uh, those- when, I was running, mm-hmm. when I was running medical calls, I always wore a watch with a second hand. So you could take pulses, respirations, yes. things like that, you know, for vitals. But, you know, I, I do know three or four people, and in fact, I've noticed it in the last couple of months, who do dive with watches you know, as part of the dive gear and along with their computer. They're still wearing their watches and kind of using it as a, a backup. Now, these are, a couple of these are watches that have depth gauges in them, mm-hmm. you know, they're almost wrist watch size dive computers yeah which are becoming more and more popular i had some customers who are looking for you know an, a uh, hoseless dive computer and we had a hard time finding anything that you know was was larger than a a large wrist watch so yeah they could put a strap on it i've you know uh, my buddy jim Kleeman, that's what he was that's how he likes to wear his dive computers on his his wrist uh, yeah, I the the last uh, those last dives we did, I did wear my fitness tracker underneath my dry suit because I've always wanted to know uh, what my heart rate does. Because uh, I, I, mentally, I always feel like when I'm, yeah, you know, you're getting your gear on, you know, you're getting worked up. It's hot. It's you're struggling getting the neoprene glove on and trying to keep everybody all together. Yeah, you know, it seems to be a borderline stressful situation. But I always feel like as soon as you start going down that dive line, you know, four or five feet below the surface, and then you just calm right down and you get in that zen, relaxed feeling. Uh, and I was a little disappointed when I looked at my numbers uh, later when I synced it up with my phone. And while I did genuinely hit some really high numbers before getting in the water, roasting in a in a dry suit. Uh, it didn't go down as much as I thought it would. It was actually still a borderline aerobic activity, even with that calming. So I think it's, it, uh, it, to me, it ended up being more of a mental calming than necessarily a physical one. So uh, makes me makes me wonder that maybe there's a little bit more to that uh, exercise coming from diving. As a I know, side I... note, I'm just curious. How many of you use a computer in the river or pawpaw or coral? When, when mine was working, <laughs> I I always had it on, and you know it kept track of so many dives, and I'd sync it up, and I'd have it. But uh, so it took the place of you having to fill out a uh, logbook. Oh yeah, well I'm I'm the absolute you know do not do what I do. I'm the absolute worst at a logbook. A lot. Yeah, exactly. 
So that's that's what I you know if I if I need to do any more training, advanced training, or you know, even going to some resorts where they want to see your dive log, I would have to go back in and uh, recreate it or you know pull up my dive computer and translate it down on paper because I just um, I'm just terrible. Uh, it's, it's, I see you just using a computer there and you're getting it beat up in the river. For yeah, no reason. Yeah, I mean, true. It does 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 bang around there, but it is it is my uh, depth gauge because on my console, um, that's where the dive computer went is where a depth gauge would be. You need a depth gauge in the river? <laughs> no, but I mean, you kind of like to know. Well, for me, it's my pressure gauge also, and you're right. It does get beat up in the river. I went to do a dive this past weekend, and my pressure gauge wasn't working properly because mine's all in one integrated. Mm-hmm. And apparently I had some sand uh, or something in, under the one of the buttons, and the pressure from the water was enough to press the button in that it started cycling through uh, and was not, wouldn't even tell me how much air was in my tank. So I had to uh, shorten that dive considerably. Yeah. There's a lot to say for analog. Oh, yeah. That's... Yeah, I, I, it just reminds me that we just, you know, there's, it's nice to have redundancy, you know, even, even across technologies. Uh, back in this article, I hadn't heard of this before, but maybe you had, is said, uh, you know, they talk about, uh, watch brands pushing the engineering frontier, and they said several of the high end dive watches have a helium escape valve. Have you heard of one of these in a dive watch? A helium escape valve? Yes. No. How, how about you, Mac? No, I'm, I'm trying to figure out why will I ever need one. Well, here they I was s- doing commercial work. I'm going to be working with what they tell me on the surface. I'm not going to be looking at a watch that's not going to be visible under my dry suit. Yeah, well, Unless they're talking Trimix. And what they're talking about is that saturation divers... Uh, you know, who are doing stuff like welding oil platforms, uh, they, where they are living in the pressurized envi- environment for an extended period of time, which has high helium co- content, that helium will seep into the watch. The valve helps the gas escape. But then again, that's utterly worthless to 99.9% of all the people who are diving. Because, uh, uh-huh. I mean, really, you could build the watch for... And uh, and it's probably bigger than I'm imagining, but in the world, how many active saturation divers are there? You know, maybe a thousand. You know, and that might even be high. And then something else they they they're talking about that's happening is that they said some of these watches have uh, crazy depth ratings. They said the Eco Dive Professional Diver 1000M is rated to a thousand meters, <laughs> so three thousand feet. I'm not aware of anybody who is going to that depth, you know, other than in a submersible. Not me. Yeah. And then uh, the one thing is uh, uh, one of the persons in the article who actually does the reviews, uh, there was uh, one watch that he dove with that was $145,000, and that was the cost of the dive watch. I'm not thinking I'm, you know, unless you're Richard Branson, are you really going to be diving with that watch? Okay. Let's see if I can get this 
next on the come up. Scuba diver discovers mysterious shipwreck in the North Northumberland Strait. Is that what they're saying? Yeah. And I'm watching it load. Maybe I'm watching it load. Maybe it, I'm just watching a blank page. Do you, do you happen to have this? Well, on? let me run with it through murky, though the, though the murky waters of Northumberland Strait, four divers followed the anchor line to the seafloor. Within minutes, they realized what they'd found. The divers gave each other underwater high fives, signaling with their hands. I never expected to see a wreck, said Campbell. When we got there, it wasn't easy to see. But we explored the spot, discovered wreckage, steel and wooden structures, and the outline of a ship's hull. Brake added, it was incredible. It will be a highlight of my diving career. Many divers don't have the chance to find a possibly unexplored wreck in island waters. On September 14th, the group had gone out with Buck McDonald to dive for scallops. Years ago, McDonald, a fisherman, had spotted the anomaly on his plotter equipment but never investigated. On mentioning it to the group, the divers decided to take a look. The new discovery sits roughly 70, 70 to 75 feet of water, about seven miles offshore of Rice Point. After exploring the wreck, the divers went back to the surface to decide the next move. They'd never gone through anything like this before, so there were lots of questions as to what we should do and who we tell said Campbell. They decided to keep the discovery between themselves in order to research the wreckage and try to determine the identity of the ship. On Tuesday, Campbell published a post on the PEI Scuba Divers Facebook page announcing the discovery to the public and identifying the ship as the Ferguson, a dredging barge that sank on June 18, 1926, claiming the lives of six of the ten crew members on board. So, congratulations to those guys for a new find. As a side note, uh, north, the Northumberland Strait is a strait in the southern part of the Gulf of St. Lawrence in eastern Canada. The strait is formed by Prince Edward Island and the Gulf's eastern, southern, and western shores. That's good right for them. There was another shipwreck find, and I don't know if you covered it, but it was the SS Clifton, the whaleback found in Lake Huron. Was that the one that Trotter found recently? Yes. Uh, the Great Lakes have had enough strange and tragic shipwrecks to fill a museum. Few disappearances so quickly, mysteriously, and completely as the SS Clifton did on September 21st, 1924 in Lake Huron. Only a few pieces of wreckage were ever found to confirm that the Clifton had indeed gone down, but for 93 years it had defied the best of Great Lakes shipwreck hunters looking for its crew, its hull, and the reasons for its demise. The SS Clifton has been on many wreck hunters' bucket lists ever since she vanished in 1924. Of the remaining shipwrecks left to find in the Great Lakes, the, the Clifton would easily be number one. Scratch the name S.S. Clifton off your bucket list. The Detroit Free Press reported that Dave Trotter, Great Lakes shipwreck discoverer, deep diver, author, and owner of Undersea Research Associates, ended his own 15-year search 
when members of his dive team discovered a wreck that turned out to be the Clifton, a mysterious 100 miles south of where experts had long speculated it sank. The Clifton was a wooden, steam-powered cargo ship called a whaleback that was built in 1892 to haul iron ore under the name Samuel Mather, the wealthy Cleveland owner of the Pickards Pickens Mather Shipping and Iron Manning Company, which dominated the Great Lakes shipping for decades. Around 1923, it was retrofitted with a new, at the time, topside self-unloading equipment and changed to a stone hauler with the name S.S. Clifton. The ship had a short life under its new name. On the night of September 21st, 1924, it was caught in a severe storm and sank with its crew of 25 and a load of stone. While a new name was not a curse, the new equipment may have been. Along with the Clifton, the other two ships that had received it also sank. Trotter says his crew discovered the wreck on September 24, 2016. They kept quiet until they could confirm the, its identity when the waters were cleaner. During the summer months of 2017, they made nine separate expeditions to examine and film the interior and exterior. The bow of the Clifton sustained heavy damage. The first 40 feet of the bow section is completely destroyed, likely caused by the impact with the late bottoms when she sank. The wreckage made apparent the cause of its sinking, and it wasn't mechanical failure. The propeller was intact, and the rudder was straightforward, indicating it was traveling in a straight line. Trotter believes the ship was hit broadside by a large wave, but something prevented it from righting itself. We found the self-unloading mechanism was still in position, and that was an interesting discovery because we now realize that the unloading mechanism didn't break free, causing the Clifton to have instability resulting from her sinking. Free from the sinking, including the stone cargo spilling on the lake bed, made exploring the difficult, but the divers were able to find signage and an unopened suitcase. Nothing has been brought back from the wreck except the video, but Trotter plans to return and attempt to retrieve the suitcase and other artifacts. Now, that was the one whaleback in Lake Huron that was still missing and unable to be found. And if you're not familiar with a whaleback, think of a submarine that has a very rounded tubular hull uh, and then is slightly flattened on top, often with a wooden deck placed above the hull. Well, that pretty much describes a whaleback, except you've got cabins and wheelhouse and living quarters all put on top. Now, take a ship like that that rides low in the water to begin with, uh, is very rounded, not triangular, if you would, like most ship hulls or half half circle, and then put a self-unloading mechanism, the derrick, on the very top of it, and you get a rather unstable vessel. Now, I, I hadn't heard about the, uh, the unloader uh, being on there. Huh. There's speculation that the... You know, the addition of the unloaders on the whalebacks made them top-heavy. Oh, huh. I mean, it kind of makes sense. So that's a, a great find for Dave, and he sat on it for a year, 
in order to document it. And I imagine that'll be uh, something that's uh, presented next spring or this winter in some of the shows that will be more than likely starting in February. Yeah, it's been a good season on the Great Lakes for a variety of finds. We we speaking of that, we had an unusual find a couple of weeks ago. Okay, let's go ahead and cover that. Shifting to diving. Yeah, we can we can do that. We'll we'll come back and uh, the that that was it for the news. We'll come back and talk about the scuba gear because I think Max may want to. Wow, Max doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah, so it's but, just a submarine. Yeah. So what what did you uh, find out there? Well, it, it wasn't really a, a find. It was more of an awakening. We had some fishermen tell us about an area where they were losing a lot of fishing gear. And, you know, they said it's a reef. It's all on the charts, but if you're not paying attention, uh, you run through this reef and it rips your gear off. So I thought, hey, let's go take a look and see if we can find some fishing gear. Well, when I got out there, a few of us dove it and... It was incredible. Uh, best way to describe it is think of a, a western plateau, you know, high plains desert that has these gullies or dry stream beds. Um, but imagine that being cut out of pure rock. And that's what we've got. It's, you know, a plateau about 30 feet deep that has trenches or stream beds or river beds cut right into this soft blue rock uh, that goes down to the surrounding bottom at around 45 feet. And, you know, I've posted some video of it on Facebook and on the Wolf's Diver Supply Facebook page. Um, I'm no geologist, but it sure looks like this was what I would call bedrock, that only thing I can think of is when the glaciers melted, it cut through the bedrock, flooding the, the valleys around it, which eventually flooded and turned it to, into Lake Michigan. So that's kind of been our find. It's, it's on the charts as a, you know, a shallower area right there on the lake, but diving it, it was incredible to look at. Just swimming along, and all of a sudden you've got this stream bed, you know, that uh, has these huge boulders flying in the middle of it. And you can just look at the stream bed and see where the water has cascaded down and cut through the rock. Uh, Bob was telling me he followed one of them for 20 minutes on a dive and went to an area that was like 15 feet wide at the bottom. It was triangular shaped, and when he looked up, it was only two or three feet wide above him. So, you know, it wasn't truly an arch cut through the rock, but uh, came pretty close to being a, you know, a tunnel or an arch cut through the rock. Wow. Yeah, because I saw that uh, some of the, uh, oh, what am I trying to say, that you know, the, the trenches, because when, when I, because yeah. we were just, uh, you know, maybe 20 yards off, and I didn't see any of those trenches but i saw the videos as, that you posted and those are pretty amazing mm-hmm. well i went back uh after we went out there the first time i went back and side scanned it quite a bit and marked the areas where i saw big depressions like that or where 
I thought the edges were of this underground or, you know, underwater mound. And then uh, we went back and dove it last Sunday and hope to get back out on it this Sunday if the weather cooperates. Oh, nice. Yeah, because you were supposed to come with us last Sunday. I was supposed to, but I had, um, I, yeah, it tells you how important it was. I'm trying to remember what it was right now. Uh, oh, I know what it was. It was actually a, it was a dive vehicle conflict. The vehicle, I had all my dive gear in, my daughter and wife needed, about the same time I would be in the water. So I couldn't come up with a situation where I could get down there to get in the boat and then be back in time for them to use the vehicle, so... Uh, I, I see my, my dive vehicle plans may have a snag in it now. Well, if you need somebody to pick you up, let me know. Yeah, I, I, if I had a little bit more notice, I probably could have done something. I kind of goes to, yeah, that, there's, there's a whole, there's a whole story there, but, uh, it did affect diving. So, but it was good. It looked like you had some, some nice weather to get out there in the lake. But was the lake temperatures starting to drop at all? Uh, there was a thermocline about four feet up off the bottom. Above that, it was in the 60s. And then below that, it felt like about the 50s. Uh, so it's starting to cool down a little, but not too much. Wouldn't you like be do- doing a big archaeological project in that condition? You could just like rise up five feet and warm up, and then you could head right back down. Yeah. Hey. yeah. So that's a, that's a great depth to work at, too, where that reef is. So anybody else get any dives in? Mac, did you get uh, any time in the river or anything? Well, we got in, of course, last week, even though we didn't have a podcast. And then uh, June joined us again for the Thursday night night in the Niles. And I had a little job during the week that was quite interesting. And uh, the river is starting to get a little chillier because even with the wetsuits, it's starting to be... The hood is appreciated, and gloves is always nice. So we didn't get all the trash out of the river. You're still able to find some bottles? Yeah, there's a few bottles out there. We we, we did find a few, and Rob was out there yesterday, or Tuesday, and he found quite a few and I think stirred up the river quite a bit. I think he did a five-hour dive. So Yeah, he did a double dip, that's for sure. Uh, I can't remember who was with him. Well, it's nice. Glad to see everybody's been able to get out. Certainly can't beat uh, this time of year, though. And it's just—it won't be too much longer, though, when the leaves start accumulating there on the river banks, mm-hmm. and our visibility and our ability to grub a little bit—it's going to go, to the, you know, it's going to go bye-bye. Yeah, well, yeah, there were there were a few leaves down there tonight, starting to drift through. Yeah, and and, I, and you can tell just around that some of the early dropping trees have have pretty much already dropped their leaves, but we haven't had a strong windstorm or a heavy rain, which can accelerate it. So if we have either of those things happen, uh, those uh, leaves will really start to cover the bottom of the river. So if you're in the bottle hunting in the Great Lakes, it's probably a great time there in those in the creeks and rivers. And then if you keep diving all the time, you'll be able to stay ahead of the of it getting too cold because it's, it's kind of like if you, you, know, you carry a well, cow. It's just a matter of just a matter of when do you ship to the dry suit i i think i'm to the dry suit (laughs) i had the wetsuit for the ecology dive that i wasn't able to get in for uh so i just might skip the wetsuit altogether this year Uh, i've been diving dry all night all summer so might as well keep going 
I think I did do one wetsuit dive. But I've, I don't know. I was just going to say, don't need no stinking dry suit <laughs> yet. Yeah. Well, uh, well, you don't have to have it, but I think I spent a little more time down than other people did. Well, the advantage, though, of you doing that is you're already ready for the ice and for the colder water. Yeah. And you're more familiar with the gear than switching from wet to dry, and you got that little period of adjustment when you got to get used to it again. So in your case, it's safer. But you've been doing some really nice deeper dives this year, some really nice wreck dives, and you had a great time up north. Oh, yeah. That was a wonderful trip up there. Yeah. This has been one of your stellar years for being able to get out there and dive. Yeah. yeah. Weather's really cooperated with getting out on the lake. I mean, think about here it is first week of October, and we've still got warm enough days and flat days. I mean, today was another flat day to have gotten out on the lake if we had planned for it. I, I think that's just making up for the spring where we had nearly no good days, days to get out there. Uh, I think there was some stuff early before anybody was getting out there. I think uh, Kevin got some days in, in March where he was out in the Great Lakes, but it seemed like it, we went all the way almost to, to late May before it started cooperating. Well, the late, you know, I mean, not having rain this year, we didn't have a lot of rain. The visibility in the river has been gorgeous. Yeah. Well, and that was the other thing that surprised me about our article earlier where we're talking about the algae blooms in Erie. Did they get more rain on that side of the state, or is it just the, the nutrients are always being fed into the into the lake? Hey, you know, a lot of the rain went south of us this year. I can't believe how much stayed below state line that we didn't get where storm after storm after storm just traveled east and missed us. Yeah, because that, that can contribute to runoff. Well, Mac, did you have uh, any uh, uh, safety stories you want to talk about? Well, actually, since we are in a little bit of a transition period, I do have something. Okay. Uh, it's going to take me one second to find it. I have it somewhere, but I can't find the darn thing. Well, he's doing that, Darren. i got a question. I've been Certainly. thinking about this one. At the beginning of the podcast, you always talk about us recording live. Yes. How could we record if we weren't live? Oh, how could we record if we were not live? Well, we could. Uh, you, you meaning uh, as, a, as a joke? I mean, if you were dead, could you record? Is no, that, I mean, you talk about, you know, Scuba Obsessed is recorded live. Well, yeah. is there any other way to record it? Uh, you, you could, uh, you know, create little clips and then edit them together would be the other way to record it. And then even though it was originally, you know, you could you'd say any shows is recorded live, uh, you know, we could do without a chat room or, or a live feed. Uh, we could do something where we, you know we all got together at the same location, record that way. So I guess that's what okay. I'm referring to when I say we've re- that we're recording live. Uh, kind of like when you're on TV and you see the little live bullet in the in the corner of the screen. So uh, I did find my article whenever you're ready, sir. Sure, go for it. Okay, uh, the, the day's item is quite interesting. I was reading Undercurrent and read a interesting report and. In that many mud divers regularly dive in cold water, many might find the following item interesting. And a lot of it, hopefully, a lot of us already know. Since the deep pressure of the... Uh, my tongue working here. 
since the depressurization of gas in a regulator results in a simultaneous drop in temperature, any water 50 degrees or less can cause a regulator to freeze and malfunction. The first stage may jam, resulting in increased interstage pressure that the second stage cannot control, causing a free flow, or, worst-case scenario, even including the airflow because of ice buildup in the second stage. Now, research from the United States Navy Department, or Experimental Diving Unit, and the University of California in San Diego tested the performance of regulators for under-ice diving operations during which 17 science divers logged 305 dives in seawater close to freezing under 20-foot thick ice in the Antarctic. 17 different regulators from 12 manufacturers, which is 69 regulators total, were randomly assigned to divers. There were 65 incidences of free flows. Due to the risk of regulator failure, the divers were all equipped with two independent regulators on a tank Y-valve with dry suit direct feed supplied from the backup regulator. Side note, I thought that was a little odd. I, I don't want a separate dry suit feed, you know. Back to the story. All the downstream regulators were equipped with an isolator valve in line with the intermediate pressure hose. And then they said, recently, the United States Navy has recommended the Ziegel isolator valve for freezing water temperatures in conjunction with a high-pressure relief valve. Besides water temperature affecting whether a regulator freezes, airflow, moisture in in your exhaled breath, and whether or not it was breathed in from cold atmosphere before immersion can also affect freezing, which we already know. You don't breathe on an air and thing before you go into water. They said, contrary to expectations, the pooled instances for the seven best-performing regulators were significantly different from the ten remaining regulators, and basically the brands. Those regulators deemed accessible, accessible, their failure rate was less than 11% were the following. Divrate Jetstream, the Sherwood Maximus SRB 3600 and the SRB 7600, my favorite coming up, the Poseidon, Jetstream, Cyclone, and Xtreme, Deep, and Mirrors, USN22, Abyss. Abyss. The report did not list those that were unacceptable. Uh, This report concludes that those diving under ice must constantly be on their guard because of the pressures of the marketplace. Super regulator models typically have a short life. However, designing a regulator tolerant to freeze up is a black art for most manufacturers, and even minor cosmetic changes can affect freeze-up risk. And this was an item called Performance of Life Support Breathing Apparatus Under Diving Ice Conditions, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it was uh, UHM 2017, volume 44, number four. It was quite interesting. I like my Poseidon, and I say again, it's justified. Very nice. Some good information there. I think it was interesting about the the Y-valve. I mean, I still like my bailout in in addition to something like that. Well, isn't the issue with the Y-valve is that you you still have a a single air source. So if there's a – I mean, I I guess you can shut one off. Yeah, absolutely. That's why you have the Y-valve. You can shut one side off. But I still like my extra tank. I was just asking Mac if he could pass that on or post it somewhere so I could – read it again and and study it a little more. I'd like to know more about some of those regulators. Yeah, I'm going to put that on the club site. 
because uh, a lot of people might want to know that, and I, I like the idea that they actually did at least tell you which ones they really liked. And Poseidon has always been on the USN, you know, the Navy go-to list. Mm-hmm. Cost a little more, a pain in the butt to work on sometimes, but they breathe good. Yeah, I have. I hear everybody is pretty happy with the Poseidons. Well, let's see. Do we want to hit back and talk about these little funny-looking objects? Yes. So the first one I have, and I, I it seemed to come in a series. So I don't know if there was a submarine convention going on or not, but uh, U-Boat Works Cruise 5-1700 Series Personal Submarine. They're saying it's a world's deepest diving five-person submarine with the ability to reach 1,700 meters. Each submersible comes equipped with two huge acrylic spheres, which lets deep explorers take a panoramic view of the world beneath the water. Um, Multi-purpose sub meets demands of the needs of private explorers, research organizations, and other undersea professionals. All with the Dutch manufacturer submersibles. The views taken through this are impressive spaces, acrylic spheres unmatched with compact pressure tolerant battery system. It has twice the battery capacity of most other submarines, an important characteristic for deep sea diving. Uh, let's see. Uh, depths up to 1700 meters require less time to the sub strategically placed vertical thrusters and its CFD optimized design. I, I mean, I'm going to talk about the price. Well, of course, we're not going to tell you. It's like, a, what's the saying? If you have to ask, <laughs> you probably can't afford it. Uh, I'm guessing that it, this thing's so expensive that it's all negotiable. But it is a beautiful looking. I don't know if this is a mock up or an actual working version, but uh, it's interesting. I haven't seen one. I mean, the, the, if you were wanting to take photos, especially at deep depths, the it's it's almost looks like uh, you're looking at the face of a dragonfly. You've got a globe on either side of this vessel with two seats in it, and they're sitting upright, not like uh, some of the earlier vasosphere type models where you're laying down, peeking through a porthole. So, if you go to U-boat uh, Work W O R K dot com, got some really neat pictures. Oh man, the models aren't too bad either. <laughs> That, that probably helps you sell the boat. <laughs> Let me see. I think there's a link in the article, too. Yeah, it actually shows a lot of the control systems with it, uh, the manipulators. Quite, quite interesting. Yeah. But I would say if you were, assuming you could come up with the return on investment, if you were doing this for tourism, it, I'm thinking that you could have one driver or pilot and then you have room for three passengers. So it seems like it would uh, either allow for more profit or uh, lower cost, depending on which way the equation you're going to work with. Uh, I'm guessing well, you can see it now. The guys who did the Mile High Club don't want to do the Five Mile Down Club. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're, yeah. Well, I got that other, that other uh, their, their web page load. Yeah, they, they spend a little bit of money on this website, too. Yeah, the images are still loading, so I'm not seeing them. So let's go ahead and take a look at the next submersible on the plan. This one was Aston Martin. Uh, Aston Martin revealed its designs to push its range far beyond James Bond's favorite Gadden Legion cars. 
by revealing plans for a multi-million pound high-tech submarine worthy of 007, the tongue-in-cheek proposed to Sir James Dyson's plans for a radical new electric car, for which he has been poaching top Ashton Martin engineers and managers, the firm boss also unveiled design for an Aston Martin vacuum cleaner. The submarine venture codenamed Project Neptune collaboration with underwater specialist Triton is the precursor to an exclusive strictly limited editions submersible for the super rich. Aston Martin says the radical submarine styling has been heavily influenced by 200 miles per hour Valkyrie hypercar. Although no price has been announced, it's expected to have uh, a price tag between 3 million and 4 million pounds or 4 million to 5.35 million dollars. Submersible at the top speed of a clump to a brisk walk can reach depths to 1600 feet or 500 meters will accommodate three people, which they say in the articles, a room for James Bond and two Bond girls, uh, compares to 1.2 million pounds or 1.6 million dollars for the 37 foot AM 37 powerboat whose first customers are taking delivery now. The limited run of 175 Valkyries are being constructed, 25 for track use, 150 for the road. Oh, so they're mixing all sorts of products all in the same article. <laughs> and then they then they show the uh, vacuum cleaner design they're coming up with, which is uh, looks to be a little silly. So between those those two, Mac, which one would you prefer to have? I think I would not take either. I would take the M7. What's the M7? That's your next topic. <laughs> oh, the next one. So let's see. Multi-million dollar yachts if you're a billionaire. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that one, Yeah, if, if all things considered and you had a check that could cover it, uh, they said the multi-million dollar mega yacht is one of the highest pinnacles of luxury. One is primarily reserved for royalty and Russian billionaires. Or, uh, but they say for those of us who are bored with oversized boats covered with helipads and jacuzzis, Australian company Magillo Private Submersible Yachts has designed a 928 foot, yes, that is 928 feet long, luxury submarine titled the M7. The M7 contains all the trappings of a typical mega yacht with a swimming pool, VIP suites, multiple hangar bays. But unlike a boring yacht that just sits around floating like an awkward $200 million piece of wood, the M7 can dive down 1,500 feet, cruise underwater at 20 knots, and explore the true beauty of the seas. An added luxury will put you back $2.3 billion, and that's the uh, Mr. Uh, Evil's uh, billion. $2.3 billion. Yep, making it the most expensive private object in the world. The M7 isn't the only submersible available in the market. Trite Submarines, Deep Flight Adventures, U-Boat Works BV, and Sea Image Hydrospace Corp. have all been producing and selling smaller submersible capable of taking two to eight passengers thousands of feet down to explore the ocean for a few hours. These submersibles can't regenerate their own power and still rely on yachts and other vessels for long-distance transportation and service. Full-on submarines like M7 are new breed. Megalo has seen recent competition from Florida-based U.S. Submarines, Inc. and Ocean Submarines in the Netherlands. These yacht-style submarines can cover can travel a 1,000 miles unassisted and become the perfect kind of luxury underwater headquarters, headquarters for plotting world domination. U.S. Submarine Nomad 1,000 seats between 10 to 24 passengers and starts at $6.5 million, whereas the high-end Phoenix 1,000 is estimated to cost around $90 million. Currently, 
No one has put an order for one of the luxury subs. The company remains focused on submersibles until that happens. Safety concerns may hinder potential buyers. Although sub makers must adhere to safety standards from their home country, all companies claim they have perfect records with dives as many as a million passengers per year. Only Ocean Submarine, which supplies the military, is under contract for civilian vessels designed for rich clients. The Nyak uh, L3 is a 64-foot submarine with a bar gallery and submarine that seats up to 20 passengers instead of the huge size offered by Megalo. They've marketed the submarine to both comfortable and high-performing. The vertical thrusters prevent interference from ocean currents, landing gear to avoid having to deal with a marina and quite and precise ride. The sub is more affordably priced at around 20 million euros or 23.8 million U.S. dollars. Train the crew to pilot luxury submarines accessible, essential on the surface just like any other ship, but underwater is a lot more rules to understand. Sub Ocean Submarines has a German training center that uses the same simulator as an airplane. The training typically takes around four months. I do like this one, if you had a blank checkbook. Six and a half million versus billions. Yeah. You could put a lot of little ones. I wonder what type of guarantee you have. You know, what, I mean, is that really the cost? Two point three billion. You know, is it like you put one point one billion down as is a, is a, is a down payment? I can't even imagine money that high. I mean, having that much stuff. Well, if you got that kind, I like of, to. Well, but there are people who do have it. I mean, you, you've got somebody who could go and pony this up. And think of what this would do for the economy of a of a business. I mean, you land a contract like that. That's the type that's reserved for defense contractors selling stuff. That would make your decade. I wonder how they woo the clients on that one. Yeah. Anything you want. When you got billions and you can spend 2.3 on a toy, you've already got everything you want. Yeah. So that really does do it for Scuba the News. Uh, make sure you follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash scuba obsessed. We're on Twitter at scuba obsessed. Uh, we've added all sorts of new subscription options. If you go to our website, you can find links on the right column that will show you how to get there. Uh, so make sure you subscribe. That way you don't miss a single episode. If you think the show's at least worth a dollar, why not head over to our Patreon account? So click on one of the banners and I'll take you over there and you can Give us a little bit of money. We're hitting to that point of the season where the we have to re-up all our contracts and hosting and things, so any amount of money would certainly be appreciated. So do we have anything else we want to cover before we wind this thing down? I'm good. Nothing here. Okay. So if, uh, well, we'd like to thank everybody who's listening. We'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. Uh, we, we did have a talk show going and we did get Discord up. Discord doesn't have the audio. We have the audio in talk show, but we're working on getting that moved over. We had Eric Roloff. We had Amarteg. Uh, we had TK Deckward, uh, and Eric were all in the chat room today. So thank you for listening and we certainly appreciate it. So let me pull up my notes and we will be ready. As always, we like feedback, so tell us what you want to hear if you're not hearing what you want to hear. Yes, you can do that. Tell us how we're doing. Send us an email at the show at scubaobsessed.com or 
from the website, click on the contact us form and felt information and that should get back to us if you don't hear anything from us then it got lost somewhere and, and just uh, uh give it another try so if we are ready for that time of the show here we go a salesman was trying to talk a farmer into buying a bicycle but was meeting with considerable sales resistance shucks i'd sooner spend my money in a cow said the farmer ah replied the salesman but think how silly you'd look riding around on a cow <laughs> reported the farmer. Not really, not nearly as silly as I'd look trying to milk a bicycle. Hmm. Not quite to the uh, our standard, you know. It's not meeting our standard on this one here. Okay. Well, do we do we need to try another one? We, do we... I think so. I mean, not, I, you're not gagging I, or anything. So I, I think we should. Okay. So so let let's try this one. Then maybe maybe this one will do it. A man was driving down the road and ran out of gas. Just that moment, a bee flew in the window. The bee said, what seems to be the problem? I'm out of gas, the man replied. The bee told him to wait right there, and within a few minutes, the man watches as an entire swarm of bees flies into his car and then into the gas tank. After a few minutes, the bees fly out. Try now, said one bee. The man turned the ignition key, and the car started right up. Wow, the man exclaimed. What did you put in my gas tank? BP. That was a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> and we may have I to go ahead. This one might be about an SOB. <laughs> so, uh, for for those outside the U.S., uh, BP is uh, what we call British Petroleum. But I guess if you had to explain it, it's no longer funny. But. So, on that note, go out there and get wet and stay safe. And remember, no bees were harmed in the making of tonight's show. Recording has been completed. Yeah, we had to get another one. That first one sort of was yeah. Yeah. <laughs> too short. It was a lot better. Yeah, I had an idea it wouldn't it wouldn't quite make the cut. So.